Before we jump into today's episode of Survivor's Sanctuary, I want to let you know that you can become a supporter of this podcast and help offset some of the costs of bringing this podcast to you each week. You can visit anchor.fm slash Survivor Sanctuary, click on donate, and you can give an amount starting at 99 cents a month and going up to $9.99 a month. If you love the podcast and you want to keep new episodes coming to you, then visit anchor.fm slash Survivor Sanctuary and become a monthly donor today. More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Hey, welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly, your host, and I want to thank you for joining me for this episode today. Well, before we dive into today's episode of Survivor Sanctuary, I do want to give you a quick trigger warning. Now, yes, we discuss sexual abuse on this podcast, but today I'm going to be talking about pedophilia, pedophiles, and some things that relate to pedophilia and pedophiles and also punishments for child sex offenders. So there are likely to be some things that could be triggering that we talk about today. And I just wanted to give you that quick heads up if you need to take a break or just maybe skip this episode. Totally understandable. I am going to try, of course, to be as sensitive as possible, but at the same time, just letting you know in case today's not a good day for you to listen to this particular episode. Well, I've been ruminating over this episode because I recently read a book called Conversations with a Pedophile. Actually, I want to say I recently read a book except for maybe like the last 10 pages because I had to take a little bit of a break from this book. Now, it is older. It was originally published in 2003. It's called Conversations with a Pedophile in the Interest of Our Children by Dr. Amy Zabin. Now, if you want to learn more about the mind of a child predator and essentially what we're up against. It is a really fascinating book. However, it is also a very, very triggering book if you have experienced abuse by a pedophile. So I would give you that warning if you're thinking about maybe picking it up and reading it. As I mentioned, it's a little bit of an older book. It's essentially a therapist who was a music therapist in prisons, and she met a man who was in prison for committing sexual offenses against hundreds and hundreds of boys. He actually had been apprehended for a crime against one child. Then a bunch of other boys came forward. And then after that, of course, he was sent to prison. He received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And there were many, many more victims that he had in his past than what he had actually been sentenced for. So I was already getting a little bit triggered toward the end of the book. I mean, it, it is a fascinating read. If you're interested in how the minds of predators work and exactly what you're up against when dealing with them, I think that it is an important book. It can tell you a lot about what's happening in the minds of people who want to prey on children, which then helps us to understand what we're dealing with, and it helps us learn more about how to spot predators and how to stop them. 
However, as I got toward the end of this book, um, we went from learning about this pedophile's crimes and the things that he did to end up in prison, and then we started to learn about his thoughts as well as the therapist's thoughts on punishments for sex offenders, specifically child molesters. And that's when I started to get just a little bit triggered because even having an open mind, I started to feel almost like I should get out a violin and play it for this man who had sexually offended against hundreds and hundreds of children um, as he talked about what it was like to be in prison. Now, he was very careful to say here and there that, well, obviously I feel for our victims, but at the same time, and he went on to talk about how things like Megan's Law and having to register as sex offenders and putting pedophiles in prison for life without the possibility of parole simply doesn't fix the problem and in fact could make the problem worse. And his reasoning is that if a pedophile knows that the crime that they're committing when they offend against a child could wind up causing them to go to prison for life, that they're going to be much more violent. And typically, he says that child molesters are not violent necessarily with their victims. But if they knew that they could go to prison for the rest of their lives, and if they commit this crime, then it could cause them to escalate their violence and end up murdering children. I find this reasoning kind of interesting given the fact that the man who is the child molester who's the subject of this book, Conversations with a Pedophile, has actually said repeatedly that it wouldn't have mattered what the punishment for the crime was. He would have committed all of these crimes regardless, and that no amount of fear of being punished or fear of being put in prison would keep him from offending. And he said, yes, the only fear that predators actually deal with is the fear of being caught. But that fear did not ever stop him from offending. And according to him, does not stop any child molester or child predator from offending. So I guess I have a little trouble getting on board with this. If a pedophile knows or a a child molester knows that what they are going to do could potentially land them in prison for the rest of their lives, if that is not enough to stop them from doing what it is that they're about to do, then I want to know how this therapy that the author is suggesting in lieu of prison, like instead of putting people in prison, how about we just give them intense therapy? And I'm not against intense therapy, but I am saying this, if the four walls of a prison and all of the bleakness and hopelessness and violence that entails is not enough to stop someone from saying, if his very freedom is at stake and that's not enough to stop him from molesting a child, then how is a therapy program for sexual offenders going to help him stop offending against children. Alan, as they call him in this book, actually relays a story of how he got sick in prison and he had to take a trip to a local hospital. And he said that as they were taking him from the transport van into the hospital, he had to walk directly past a very attractive, blonde-haired, 11 or 12-year-old boy. And I guess that was his victim of choice. And that was all he needed. He had been in prison for five years. And he said all the old feelings came crashing down. He felt like this kid was a magnet pulling him mentally toward him. And even though the entire incident couldn't have taken more than a minute, in those 60 seconds, he said that he saw again what he really was. He felt those same feelings and went immediately into a deep, twisted, violent, 
fantasy. He said he saw, he wanted, and if he were free, he would most likely have sought a manner of acting out. Here he was, like literally handcuffed in leg irons and chained up and confronting the type of kid who got him there in the first place. And even under those circumstances, he wanted to offend against that child. He said nothing had changed. The intensity of the urge, the overwhelming mental leap into fantasy, and the physical response of the body were as they had always been over active. And he said that he had seen the child and days later, he was still very much fighting, having fantasies about offending against this child. So here's my question. If five years after this man was put into prison, serving a life sentence, and he had been in therapy, that's how he met the person who is the author of the book, because she was his music therapist. He had been participating in therapy for five years. And as he walked past this child, all he wanted in the entire world was to offend against this child. And he said that if he hadn't been cuffed and shackled and chained up, that's exactly what he would have done. Now, I'm not saying that every single person who's ever offended against a child is that exact same way, but I am saying that predators, typically the kind who end up in prison for having abused multiple children, more than likely are going to struggle with the same type of thing. So I guess I'm a little confused by people who say, like, we need to rehabilitate sexual offenders instead of just shoving them into prison. And I'm actually not telling you, just FYI. I'm not telling you that I think that we shouldn't try therapy and rehabilitation and all kinds of stuff for people who are caught uh, sexually offending against small children, especially when it happens when they're very young, because many times people begin sexually offending in their childhood. And yes, if you could get a child therapy at that age and find a way to help them then, maybe you could prevent some of what happens rather than just ending up having to put someone in prison. So I'm not arguing that I don't think there's a place for therapy. I'm actually not a person who tends to be like the public at large. We freak out when there is a predator in the news or you find out that a sexual offender lives near you. You know, everybody's like, you know, sentence them to death and life in prison and get them out of our neighborhoods. And I, I tend to not really be over the top in my reaction. I tend to view it just through the reality of everything that I've learned throughout my life, having been a victim of sexual abuse and having learned about my offender and others like him. And that is, well, like, let's look at this just factually and logically that people who are offending at a level where they're getting caught and getting arrested are typically people who are offending for a long time. And that's where this book, I feel like, is a bit dishonest. And maybe some of these studies hadn't come out in 2003 when this book was published, but I feel like it's a little bit dishonest because what he keeps trying to say, this child molester who is talking about the fact that you know they need rehabilitation and they need help, not incarceration, the stories that he keeps sharing are stories about like teenage kids who get shoved into an adult prison at 17, 18 years old, and then they are violently, they're treated violently by other prisoners, they're abused in prison, and they have a horrible, horrible experience, and then they get out, and they're even worse than they are than when they went in, and they end up reoffending. And he's saying, like, you know, when you arrest these poor, like, 19-year-old kids, and then you just brand them a sex offender for life, and you don't get them any help, and then you just want to throw them in prison and, and toss away the key. The problem I have with that narrative is that we know, based on research that the average pedophile has had a lot of victims before he is ever caught. 
It's not a common thing for a sexual predator to be caught the very first time that they offend. And so I feel like the book is a little bit dishonest, right? I guess I should say not the book is not dishonest, but the pedophile who is talking in the book, I I don't think is being completely honest with himself. But actually, this episode is not really about what I think the sentence should be for a person who is sexually offended against children. That is a debate that we can have. And I I am interested in quite a bit surrounding that. But for the purposes of today's episode, I was actually just kind of sitting with how I felt about getting toward these latter chapters of the book. And we had gone from him describing the horrific, horrific things that he had done to children from the time he was seven years old. He started offending at the age of seven from the time he was seven years old until he was in his 50s when he was finally apprehended and brought to justice. We spent the whole book dealing with all of the things that he had done, the escalation that went throughout his childhood, throughout his teen years, and then into his adulthood. We, we listened to story after story uh, and read the like indescribable things that happened to his victims. And then at the end, he's basically saying that pedophiles need help and they need therapy and they need for somebody to help them before they begin escalating their crimes. And arguments can be made for that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that if we could provide therapy to people before they start offending and, and actually figure out a way to help, like that's a great thing. Unfortunately, he's talking about the brutality and hopelessness and dehumanizing, depressing confines of the walls that surround prisoners. Um, that is directly from the book. And he's talking about um, people who are incarcerated. And yes, it's dehumanizing, I'm sure, to be in prison. It's brutal. It's depressing. You lose your freedom that can't feel warm and fuzzy. But I started to think as this sexual predator went on and on about how prison really isn't a great idea for sex offenders. I just stopped because I'm, I'm sitting with this and not really realizing why it was bothering me so much. And as a victim of sexual abuse, I actually like to keep a bit of an open mind. And I don't I don't want that to be triggering in any way, not to excuse someone who is sexually offended against children, but I actually want to know like the science behind things and reasonings behind things, the psychology behind what causes people to do what they do. And I try not to just say, I'm unwilling to listen to any information because I feel like truth does not shrink from inquiry. And like that famous quote, it it doesn't shrink back. The truth should never be afraid of being questioned. And so what I believe about sexual offenders and what I believe about survivors, I'm willing to have conversations and keep an open mind and learn things because I think that the truth is always going to be the truth and it's not ever going to be put into jeopardy because we examine it. Because the truth upon examination is still going to be the truth. So I was kind of trying to think like, why is this bothering me so much? And am I just, am I just biased because I have been sexually abused and I believe that the man who sexually abused me, well, I know he abused other people, but I believe that he has abused many more people than he's ever admitted to. Um, Is that the reason that I have trouble like getting behind 
therapy and psychological help for people who sexually assault children. Is, is that my issue? And as I was kind of ruminating on this over the last couple of days, uh, we started a conversation in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And hey, shout out to the Facebook group. If you want to join, it is Facebook, obviously. Just search Survivor Sanctuary, answer one easy, easy question, and you have to answer it. Because if you don't answer, I assume that you are not a person who is looking to talk about sexual abuse. Um, so answer the question and then I'll let you in. But anyway, someone who had just joined the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group actually posted, and I'm not going to say her name because I didn't actually get permission to share her name, but she was new to the group and she left a comment talking about dealing with being a survivor of sexual abuse. And some of what she said actually kind of made the pieces of this puzzle about like pedophilia and incarceration of people who sexually offend against children and this argument that we need rehabilitation instead of long prison sentences and all this stuff like it kind of came into view why these last few chapters of this book bothered me so much she asked the question if anyone felt exhausted she was talking about being tired to your marrow of living out a CSA survivor's life sentence with no chance of parole. And she talked about the fact that she was burned out and overwhelmed and spent, and she's using up all of her energy to overcome the after effects of sexual abuse that she has to live with. And she spends all of her energy kind of dealing with those extra things. And she's just tired and wishing for a parole or a pardon for a survivor's life sentence. And when, when she said that, it kind of just brought into focus like this, this is what has been bothering me so much, not just about this book, because I've been reading this book and that's why I brought it up today. But I've actually been in conversations with other people about pedophilia and the prison sentences for people who offend against children and how the public just freaks out and how we need to recognize that pedophilia is a sickness, it's a mental illness, and people don't ask for it. And, you know, those are conversations that I'm willing to have and that I do engage in sometimes. And I'm not without empathy for a person who finds themselves sexually attracted to a child and has no control over it. I'm not completely without empathy for that. And I hope that that's not triggering because I'm not in any way ever, you know, justifying what somebody does with those thoughts or feelings. Like we all have things that we wish we didn't have to deal with and that we didn't ask for, especially, and, and here's to bring it around to why the pieces of the puzzle fell into place, especially when you are a survivor of sexual abuse and you did not ask for the life sentence that you've been given. You didn't ask for somebody to sexually abuse you. You didn't ask to be affected deeply down to your DNA by what a predator decided to do to you when you were a child. You didn't ask for that. Survivors didn't ask for that. And so with all of these conversations we're having around what should happen to, to pedophiles and people who sexually offend against children and and why can't we just view this as a sexual orientation? Or why can't we just view this as a mental illness and a sickness? And, you know, pedophilia is not child molesting and child molesting is not pedophilia. They're two different things. You know, the arguments and the conversations go on and on and on. And we're talking about rehabilitation and therapy programs and whatever for people who have sexually offended, including in prison, in the prison system, when, when people are in for preying on children, sexually abusing children, sexually assaulting 
assaulting children, when they're in prison for that, they have actual resources that can help them to change if they want. They have resources that they can use, like resources at their disposal. Like this dude, Alan, who had spent his entire life sexually assaulting little boys, Alan was in prison getting music therapy from a lovely therapist who he still writes letters to to this day. He had tons of time every single week to participate in this special sex offender program in prison where he got a free therapist. Like, he didn't have to pay for that therapist. Like, yes, he's incarcerated, but look look at him go. He gets this wonderful music therapist. They get group therapy sessions and solo therapy sessions. And there are ways that people can participate in these programs to try and be rehabilitated if that's what they want. And I started to think about what is the support for survivors of sexual abuse? Because that part to me is very interesting. If someone is arrested for a sexual offense and maybe it's like, okay, this was your first offense and you're not going to spend a lot of time in prison and maybe it's a short prison stint and then they're on parole. And one of the conditions of their parole is that they need to participate in therapy. And are they paying for that therapy? No, they're not paying for that therapy. It's a condition of their parole and they are given a therapist and they're required to go. And yeah, they get in trouble for not going. But the point is that there are resources that are being provided to people who are predators, to people who have offended against children. And I'm not saying that there are no programs available for victims of sexual abuse, but there aren't to the extent that we are trying to rehabilitate predators. A victim is abused and then they come forward and then their abuser gets punished and and maybe gets sent to prison. And it's up to that victim pretty much for the remainder of their life. They're, They're responsible. They're in charge of their own healing. And that's where you get comments like the one in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. Um, That's where you get comments like that. That's where they come from. It's the mental exhaustion of having to live with a choice that somebody else made for you. And I will say that while, yes, I, I agree when people say that sexual abuse is a life sentence, I tend to agree and and not because I don't think that there's hope for people who have experienced sexual abuse, but that even when there is hope and even when you can overcome a lot, many, many people are going to be dealing with some of the effects of having been abused for the remainder of their lives. So while they learn how to deal And they learn how to kind of navigate these extra challenges they have that the average person who has never been sexually offended against has to navigate. But they may never be completely free from those things. They learn how to live with them. And I think that that's like somebody learning how to live in prison. Like, I'm going to be here without the possibility of parole. My life has completely changed. This is my new normal. And now I have to learn how to navigate my life behind bars, my life as a person who is incarcerated as a punishment for crime. It's something as a survivor that you did not ask for. It was thrust upon you by somebody else deciding to offend against you. And yet it's something that you are forced to deal with. It is your normal. And a lot of times we use the energy. Think of like a person who's never been abused and a person who maybe doesn't have any of those mental health issues or emotional issues or even physical issues that are a result of having been sexually abused as a child. They don't have any of that to deal with. So for that person, it's like, okay, I need the energy to get through today. 
maybe I have work, maybe I have a workout I have to do, maybe I have a test coming up, maybe I have a lot of stress and that's what I need my energy for today. But the sexually abused person or a person who has in their past been a victim of sexual violence and sexual abuse, like that person not only has to conjure the energy just to deal with their day, but also to deal with all of the baggage surrounding everything that they've been through that kind of has stayed with them and has come alongside them throughout the years. And even as people who heal and make leaps and bounds in healing, go to therapy and and do all the things that you need to do so that you can be a whole and mentally healthy person, you do all of those things, there are still some things that you are going to have to deal with that you don't want to, you would love for therapy to be able to fix it, you would love for all the books that you've read to be able to fix it, you would love for your positive attitude and your positive affirmations and your meditations and your journaling and whatever else it is that you do to try to heal, you would love for all of those things to make it go away. And yet, mysteriously, those things do not make it go away. And it's something that you have to deal with regardless. And even sometimes when you may feel like you've started to make some progress in that area, and you've grown in an area and you feel like maybe this isn't an issue for me, it'll suddenly rear its ugly head at some point, because that is the nature of trauma. And that is what happens in our bodies and in our minds when we're sexually abused as children. And yes, there is healing, but you are still, when push comes to shove, you're still dealing with a life sentence, except that the life sentence is not for something that you chose to do. And I think that is the slap in the face that this book is talking about how instead of incarcerating sexual offenders, what we need to do is to give them therapy and to help them. And I find it really interesting because They have actually sentenced their victims to life without parole. You can never not be a victim of sexual abuse. You know, you can overcome and you can be a survivor and you can thrive in your life, but it's never going to change the fact that somebody victimized you, that somebody sexually abused you, and parts of that will stay with you and will make your life more difficult. Maybe not in every single way, but in ways. And I'm not saying this to give you like a reason if you feel great about your life. Oh, let me figure out what sucks about my life because of sexual abuse so I can complain about it. That's not what I'm saying. It's just a reality that this adverse childhood experience creates so many problems in victims, so many problems. And bless your parents' hearts or your family's hearts if you were victimized by sexual abuse and you got help right away and you had a super supportive family and you feel like an overcomer and and you're not upset and you're not dealing every day with what you would consider a life sentence. That's awesome. But for so many victims of sexual abuse, that's not the case. And they live out the consequences of somebody else's depraved choice every single day. And I think that's what made me really upset about this book. Because in the earlier chapters of the book, when the child molester uh, predator starts talking about, you know, what he was like, he was saying that Child sex offenders often view themselves as victims. And earlier in the book, we heard from this man as he talked about that mindset that he felt he had to overcome. He said, I saw myself as a person who through no fault of his own was deprived of a normal life. And as I convinced myself that I had been somehow cheated by fate, I felt I had a license to do anything I chose to. 
If I wanted to force some smaller child into blank, why shouldn't I? After all, I was the real victim here, not him. This self-created and self-serving sense of victimization allowed me to do anything that I desired without the slightest twinge of guilt, shame, responsibility, or remorse. So offending pedophiles are viewing themselves all their lives as victims, victims who are forced into the situation they're in. And through no fault of their own, they're this way. And so therefore, they can't help it. And they can do whatever they want. They are entitled to abuse because they are victims. And then he actually spent a part of the book saying how that was what was important to accept in order to be able to be rehabilitated. He had to accept responsibility for the things that he had done and stop viewing himself as a victim. But then by the end of the book, when he's talking about how this really isn't the way to deal with pedophilia and sex offenders and putting people in prison is is not the way to go because it doesn't help anyone. It's dehumanizing. It's this and it's that. To me, we've come full circle back to I am a victim. And I guess that really bugs me because a person who has spent his entire life, literally his entire life was an obsession of offending against hundreds and hundreds of children. And this book, like is it's jaw dropping the things that he did and the way that he lived. And we have all of that. But then a life sentence is dehumanizing. And a life sentence is not really going to help anyone to understand, you know, what pedophilia is and how people need to be rehabilitated. So to me, you're coming back to that victim mentality. And when it comes to sexual offending against children by adults, the victims are always the people who are being perpetrated against. The victims are always the people who did not have a choice who were chosen as victims for whatever reason by a person who didn't care about them at all and felt they had a license to do whatever they wanted to these people. That's dehumanizing. That's dehumanizing. Not putting somebody in prison because they have sexually assaulted multiple people. Like I think that what's dehumanizing is being chosen as the target for sexual offenses that are degrading, chosen as a target for whatever reason. And to have an offender look at you like you don't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what this is going to do to you. It doesn't matter how much therapy you're going to need to survive this. In fact, that's not something that's even on my mind because it is my right to do this to you. The people who are victims of that are the victims. And again, if people want to have a conversation about the mental illness that is pedophilia and just a caveat because you know many people interchange child molester and pedophilia but pedophilia is the strong sexual attraction to a child and child molesting is actually you know physically molesting a child so they're not interchangeable because technically someone can be a pedophile and not ever be an offender so that's the big argument like there are people who would be willing to get help if everybody wasn't so freaked out and they didn't hate people who have a sexual attraction to children and they're so ostracized that they're pushed deeper and deeper into their own little fantasy world because they have to hide from society and this makes them more likely to offend. And you know what? That's a conversation that we can have. And that's a conversation that I'm not going to shy away from because, again, truth does not shrink from inquiry. I will look into things and look into the science behind things and you know, my mind is not completely shut and saying like, okay, anyone who's sexually offended against a child, you know, needs to be sentenced to death at the end. I'm not one of those people. 
But I'm also not willing to sit and listen to somebody who has ruined the lives of hundreds upon hundreds of children, who has violated them in ways that are unthinkable, and whose lives are now shattered because of what he did. I'm not going to listen to him talk about how dehumanizing prison is, because you did something to earn that dehumanization. You did something to earn your place behind those walls and behind those bars. You made choices that led you there. And guess who did not make choices that led them to their life sentence? That would be your victims. Because we didn't have a choice. You know, somebody preyed on us and conned us and groomed us and tested us and used us as just a pawn in whatever sick game they felt like playing. And now we are living out the life sentence for that even though we did not make those decisions. And so while no, I'm, I'm not in a prison and I'm not behind bars and I don't have somebody telling me when I can go and, and eat and when I can go outside and, and when I can go take a shower, I don't have that happening in my life. But what we are living with is the after effects of having been abused and sexual abuse and pedophilia destroys people. It destroys them. It leads to some of the most horrible, not just emotional problems and mental problems, but physical problems as well. It has the ability to take a life that has promise and turn it into something completely different. And again, hear me when I say this is not to tell you that if you've been victimized by sexual abuse, that there's no hope for you, but it is to not minimize what has been done to you. And I think that sometimes that's what we do. Like we, we have people in prison and all the these experts wanting to figure out pedophilia and to help pedophiles be okay for society and be rehabilitated so they can be productive citizens. And then you have victims. It's kind of like in the church, it's the same thing where all the focus is on restoring the brother and rehabilitating the brother and making sure that they can come back into the fold and be accepted. And the person who is shouldering the entire burden of what has happened is the victim. And they're expected to do that. And I'm seeing that now in the conversations that we're having about sexual abusers and child molesters who are being caught and incarcerated. Like, oh no, we can't put them in prison because this is only going to make the problem worse. And this is only going to make children in greater danger. And this isn't dealing with the real problem. We need to help people and rehabilitate them, not put them in prison. And like, I don't have any patience for that right now. I just don't. Not when I have people commenting in Survivor Sanctuary. And when I have these feelings myself, it's like, I'd like to just be able to get through a day and be a totally normal person. I had somebody else who is not really a victim of sexual abuse, but a victim of, of trauma and just said to me recently, like, I just wish I could be normal. I wish that, that I didn't have to deal with all this stuff. And those are feelings that a lot of survivors, we feel them all the time. And it's the reality in which we live. So before I feel sorry for an incarcerated sex offender, I am going to feel sorry for the victims of that incarcerated sex offender who are also serving a life sentence that they didn't do anything to deserve. Nothing. We're serving sentences for crimes that somebody else committed. And nobody is providing us a music therapist to help us through it. <laughs> I mean, maybe I sound a little bitter about that, uh, but it's true. Like we, we talk to survivors and if you are a survivor, you know, like I'm preaching to the choir here, um, but you know that it's one of those things. People are like, I have no money to go to therapy. 
yes, I was victimized by sexual abuse and I have all of these scars and all of these wounds and I'm trying to just read books that I can get from a library because I can't afford to just buy tons of books all the time and um, maybe reading's not your thing and you need therapy, but hey, I can't afford it because it costs a lot of stinking money to get a therapist. It just does. You spend a lot of money on therapy and it's hard to find a therapist that is going to be covered by your insurance. Like for instance, for me, um, I found therapists who are covered under my insurance. And this is just a little uh, rabbit trail I'm chasing here because it fits just to illustrate this point. Yes, I have insurance where there are psychiatrists and psychologists that are in network. And so technically I would have benefits, but because I have the kind of health insurance that's a health savings account, it's an HSA, uh, what happens is your deductible is very, very high. So my in-network deductible is over $4,000 a year. And if it's out of network, like some of the therapists that I've really wanted to go to, or if they specialize in something like um, EMDR or hypnotherapy or other therapies that your insurance is like, nah, that's not covered because that's, you know, that's still experimental or, or whatever. Um, if you want to use those, my deductible for the year is $12,000 out of network. So I would have to spend $12,000 on therapy before my insurance would come in and then pay 80%. It's ridiculous. And when you think of it that way, it's not possible for every person who has been victimized by sexual abuse to just pick themselves up by their bootstraps and heal because of the power of positive thinking. Like I actually think positive thinking is great and positive affirmations and all that good stuff. I know that there's great science behind it, but I also know that it doesn't just heal your entire life from sexual abuse because you say affirmations. You know, it's it's a lifelong process and a lifelong journey for a lot of people of healing, and it just is. And we learn things and we grow and things might get a little bit easier. But while our offenders are in prison getting music therapy, uh, we're out here just struggling to survive and figure out our healing ourselves because we don't have that luxury. And while I say that, let me add this because this was another part of the book that really bugged me. The vast, vast majority of people who sexually offend against children are never going to step foot in a prison, ever. That is the reality in which we live. And so you can talk to me with violins playing in the background about how, you know, sexual abusers just need to be rehabilitated. These poor people, you're just shoving all these people in prison who, you know, they have a disease that they can't help and it's not really fair. Like cry me a river when the vast majority of people who sexually abuse children are never, ever, ever going to see the inside of a prison. So don't talk to me about what's fair and what's not fair because the person who sexually abused me is not getting music therapy. He's actually just living his life exactly how he wants to live it, surrounded by kids and doing whatever he wants because he never had to make amends for what he did. He never had to serve any time. And I'm not saying that I want him to go to prison or anything like that. I'm just saying that's the reality for victims of sexual abuse that most of our offenders will never see the inside of a prison. If for whatever reason, there's not enough evidence to even take it to trial and a prosecutor won't even take your case, you know, a case never goes to trial for many, many reasons. There are more sex offenders outside the walls of prisons than in. So I don't think that that is the big issue for us here. I don't think the big issue is that we are punishing pedophiles or child molesters in the wrong way. That's not the issue when the vast majority of them are never, ever caught. And if they are caught, the odds that they're going to spend time in prison are 
very much in their favor, not in their victim's favor. So while I'm willing to have these conversations, uh, like the book says, conversations with a pedophile, while I'm willing to have these conversations, yes, I find it just very interesting that much like in the church, these conversations are not about how we protect children. These conversations are not about what's fair and just for a victim of sexual abuse. It's always, our focus is always on the perpetrator. And it it just, it bothers me to no end that the perpetrator is always the focus. The person who has caused the problem, who has made the horrible, evil decision, that person is the one who is the focus of everybody's concern. Now, do we get this poor prisoner, a music therapist? Does he get to go to group therapy? And let's try to rehabilitate him because, you know, he he didn't choose to be this way. And well, you know what? Maybe he didn't choose to be sexually attracted to children. But what he did do was choose to sexually offend against children. And that is the point at which I no longer feel that that is the person who our efforts should be focused on. I believe that more of our efforts need to be focused on victims, victims who are living out a life sentence that they don't deserve, that they did not ask for, and that is causing great stress and anxiety and many issues in their lives that they have to deal with every single day. And sometimes it just takes all of our energy to deal with surviving and, you know, forget about thriving because that's a whole other story. So I just wanted to chat about that a little bit today. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we've talked about today on this episode of Survivor Sanctuary. So again, you can join me in the Facebook group. Just search Survivor Sanctuary and ask to join. And I will add you once you answer that question. And you can join the conversation about this life sentence that we are living and also the sentences of those who have offended. I'd love to hear about um, how you've experienced that in your life as a survivor. Well, that's it for this episode. I'll catch you back here next time on Survivor Sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.